Tim here. Welcome back. When Michelle and I thought about putting this season together, we started with the obvious. Conversations between the two of us, as well as subject matter experts in the fields of fitness and rehab. We then realized a valuable addition might be to have a client on that struggled with some degree of chronic pain, and I quickly realized that I've had one such client on my roster for several years now. Sam Leffers is a behavioral health practitioner based in Indianapolis, Indiana, who helps clients with a broad variety of psychological ailments, including those suffering from anxiety or depression related to chronic pain. Additionally, he's a runner who walks the walk in managing training, life, and his movement practice in the setting of fairly persistent left Achilles issues. Although not a household name in our industry, Sam is a wealth of knowledge, acquired both personally and professionally. And together, we dive into topics such as why tension is the root of suffering, physical pain versus suffering, fixing someone versus establishing a therapeutic alliance, acceptance strategies, meditation and stimulus response unpairing, learning to appreciate and, dare I say, love your idiosyncratic movement and psychological compensations. I think you'll get quite a bit from this episode, and if you do, it'd mean a lot to us if you'd consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. More positive ratings mean it's easier for folks to find us, and that'll let us keep doing this type of work for a while longer. Now, on to the show. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Well, I am live with the one, the only, Sam Leffers. Uh, Sam has been a client of mine, a remote fitness programming client for, for quite a few years, and I was curious to kind of get his thoughts on some of the through lines that we've been trying to establish this season of More Train, Less Pain, um, because he's not only someone that has uh, professional things to say about uh, ways to change mindset in regards to chronic and persistent pain, but but kind of as a master operator in that space and, and has a fair amount of personal experience as well. So um, all that is by way of saying, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, this feels uh, a lot like a coaching call, except I'm not in my robe. <laughs> that makes one of us, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you look great. It's a nice robe. <laughs> <laughs> you you're going to be the only podcast guest that has superior audio quality um you are mic'd up and have headphones and i just have my chance of little airpods i had this mic in the back of a closet and i i kind of remembered at the last second like i think this is the the podcast mic the the sm7 so yeah i, I sound like uh yeah i sound like mark Marin. i don't know yeah i mean it's people. it's 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 deep. It's resonant. I like also that you're, uh, I mean, our listeners aren't seeing the video, but you're holding the microphone up and it, it's very exciting. Yeah. I have the microphone, uh, realized I do not have a microphone stand. So we're, we're free handing it. Uh, Sam, tell the people a little bit about kind of who you are in present day and what you do professionally. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm based out of Indianapolis. I'm a clinical mental health counselor. I'm kind of, kind of new to the field. Um, you know, went back to, to grad school to do that training sort of right at the end of, uh, not the end of COVID, but sort of as, as COVID was, um, was starting to clear up a bit. And yeah, I, um, I started working with Tim a few years ago. I mean, do you kind of, do you want me to kind of go through how I came to be a client of yours or? 
Where, where do you want yeah, to start? I, 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 th I think a little bit of um, like athletic history, upbringing, uh, you know, th things pertinent to your Achilles. We don't have to go too in depth there. And then we can kind of branch to um, pr probably not that interesting how you came to find out about me, but um, when we started working together and, and kind of what that looks like. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I played a lot of sports growing up. I think um, competitive sport was a huge part of my identity. So that was like basketball, baseball, and then track and cross country was, was kind of my main focus and what I was best at. Um, so, you know, did that through middle school into high school, um, you know, was, was decently fast, um, ran pretty fast my freshman year. And I think about midway through my freshman track season, I ran like, I think a little, a little under 1030 in the two mile. And like in that race, my toe broke, like I got a stress fracture and I didn't realize at the time that was going to be my last race on the track ever. So over the next summer, like training for cross country, I started developing sort of Achilles soreness that would kind of come and go, uh, just kind of plagued my training for that whole season. And it just kind of never went away. Um, I, like I said, I was very much super kind of type A competitive guy and running was really important to me. So I never really, I think, gave myself the chance to heal. I kind of thought I was invincible, thought that this was just going to go away. And, you know, as with a lot of tendon issues, they don't really go away if you keep pressing. And so it just kind of kept getting worse to the point where I just stopped running completely. Um, like my junior year, um, never, never had a track season again. Um, just kind of stopped running in general, kind of gave it, gave it a try over the years. Um, but I would always kind of try to rush back into it try to do too much and, you know, things would flame up. There would be a lot of fear associated with that, a lot of um, frustration. And so I would just stop. And so, yeah, I mean, just through kind of another injury, I came into contact with Bill Hartman, started working with him, um, kind of started digging into some of the network that's sort of related to Bill, like Zach Couples and, and you and Michelle, I came across and saw that you had a running background and was like, well, Maybe I could give this a try again. So, so I got in contact. And that was two years ago, three years ago. That sounds right. Time, yeah. time it's doesn't been a work the same for me, but yeah. It's been a couple. <laughs> um, and then kind of speak to, you know, again, I'm, what I'm, what I'm not intending here is for this to be an advertisement for um, remote training services, but I, cause I think, I think you've really done a lot of the heavy lifting on your end insofar as how you're now thinking about uh, lifting and, and running um, and kind of things that have shifted for you over the, for the past couple of years. So kind of talk to me about, at least in your perception, it's like, what's, where are you now and what's different now than it was three or four years ago? Yeah. So yeah, I think kind of coming into contact with you and other sort of like PTs and trainers that have a similar mindset and a similar approach was sort of an evolution of me kind of learning to let go of some of that like super type A, super competitive, tense mindset. And so when I initially reached out to you, I, I think what I was looking for was honestly like accountability um, to just chill. You know, I was already sort of aware that like managing volume and managing intensity in a way that was relatively conservative um, and just, just kind of smart 
was something that I, I probably needed help with something I knew I needed to do. But, um, you know, it's just always, it's always easier to have someone on the outside looking in than it is to try to manage your own system from, from inside itself. So I think what I was looking for when I first reached out was just like accountability to not just prioritize these like external goals that I always want to strive for. Um, and more just like someone that could kind of help me keep a perspective on, on just wanting to, you know, wanting to get back to running because I like doing it and because it's, it's part of a meaningful life for me. And just in terms of pure outcome, I mean, I, I think when we first started working together, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you were running. No, I mean, I was, I think I was doing some run walking, but it was, I mean, I was, we're talking like three minutes of running, five minutes of walking, you know, few cycles of that. Like I was really, I was probably overly conservative at first because I had kind of learned more about how, you know, intensity and volume was sort of, and like ramping that up too quickly was what kind of had prevented me from making progress in the past. Um, but you know, I, now I'm up to, you know, I've, I'm just did an hour run yesterday, running three times a week. Um, you know, it wouldn't sound much like it wouldn't sound much to me in high school, but for someone who really thought he was never going to run again, like to be running three times a week is it's huge. And, and it's, it's just like very much contributing to me feeling like I'm getting to like exercise and maintain physical fitness in a way that I like actually care about and have fun with. Yeah. And it's been, again, it's been incredibly you know, gratifying to kind of be alongside you this entire journey. Um, talk to me present day. Again, I think I know the answer, but um, your Achilles symptom free, symptom minimal. Like, what, you know, what do we feel in terms mm. of aches, pains, niggles on a day to day basis? Day to day. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling a, I'm feeling a little wiggle here and there. I'm feeling one right now. Um, and may, maybe that's sort of another thing to bring up is like, there's, you know, anytime we talk about persistent pain, and I'm sure this is something that you guys have talked about, or we'll talk about this season, like there's always all this fear involved. Um, something that I kind of thought that I had maybe worked through. But on a day to day basis, you know, I'll, I'll always feel like a little twinge, um, I might get like, a little bit of minor swelling or stiffness and having someone to talk to about that has made it so much easier to just realize like that's part of the process. Um, you know, it's something that's just going to continue to happen and we can do things to manage that, but it's not something to avoid entirely. So symptom free, no, but, um, feeling great and, and not feeling like Achilles discomfort is like hampering my ability to do cool stuff. Yeah. This is kind of the thing that I wanted to put like three exclamation points after is, I mean, I think if there's anything I'm trying to get across with this season of the podcast, it's that. This notion of we have to be entirely pain and symptom free before we can get in, into an activity or, or progress something. Um, talk to John Pope, who's a he basically is a is a guy that prepares a lot of special operations uh, folks for for selection. And you know, within his world, it's like these guys have multiple sites of pain at any given time, and that's just the expectation. And so for him, it's about making sure that they're not going full on David Goggins 
and like just running into a wall and through pain, um, but also not being hyper reactive to it and just shutting things down. And I think when I hear your story, that's kind of what I think of is this this ability to ability to successfully navigate the middle ground between those two extremes of like, I don't care that the thing hurts, I'm going to ignore it. And I super care that this thing hurts. And it's time to adjust everything because it hurts. Yeah. So I think it, the thing that I always kind of come to, whether we're talking about like persistent physical pain, or, you know, in my work, often, pers you know, persistent, emotional, you know, mental pain, that kind of thing is like, the thing that it hurts to do is ultimately the thing that we're going to want to do in order to fully, whether you want to say like process or like move past this pain. And so that's always going to involve some level of discomfort. You know, I, I, I think it wasn't until I actually, with your help, like started running, running again, that I started kind of working through some of the the most fear that I had had because it was really like fear about like, if I try to run again, run, run, like, you know, 20, 30 minutes, an hour at a time, that's going to lead to something like irrevocable happening. And it wasn't until I started like actually putting myself in a position where there was a little bit of risk and there was a little bit of discomfort. Once I realized that that was not going to lead to something really, really, you know, some point of no return, with my discomfort, it, it just opened up this whole road of like, oh, this is just a process and the process involves some level of pain and some level of discomfort and that's fine. Do you think that the reason that you're currently able to do the things that you're able to do with running has more to do with some of the biomechanical interventions that we've gone after or has more to do with some of the changes that you've made in regards to like mindset about pain or viewing things as a process. Um, and of course, maybe that's, maybe that's begetting of inviting a false dichotomy. I'm not sure, but curious to get your read on that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I was thinking about that in preparation for the podcast because, you know, I don't necessarily think about the biomechanical stuff that we're doing as being super related to trying to get me out of any sort of pain like for me it's become this fun game that's a part of why i enjoy exercising and then why i enjoy running is like to just kind of continue to increase my awareness of what my body is doing and to try to bring it back into balance like as a system and so i don't know i think i think a lot of what maybe brought me to wanting to work with a coach in general was just learning about chronic pain and chronic tension and sort of understanding at least intellectually what it looks like to sort of live a life without being scared of being in pain and um, you know knowing how to work through it but I really think like and I, I think this is something important when it comes to you know, whether or not someone wants to work with a coach, if you're someone like me who is overthinking and analyzing things all the time, especially related to your pain, it is so helpful to have someone that can just keep things simple. Um, to just be able to like turn my brain off while I'm training, not only I think has it probably contributed to like less frequency and intensity of pain experiences, but I'm also just like having more fun because I'm not in my head trying to 
diagnose every step I take and, and every exercise that I do, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this is like the biggest mistake that I see with young physical therapists or young strength and conditioning professionals that uh, with their own training there, they continue to design it. And it's, they don't have any ability to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, okay, this is, this is coach Tim that's designing the program. Now this is athlete Tim that's doing the program. And those, those, those should be two separate people. Cause what you're describing is a, is, you know, a context in which they are actually two separate people. Um, but I think that having a little bit of a disconnect, and we're going to talk about this when it comes to like meditation and stimulus response, but having the ability to be in the thing, doing the thing, and then having a second brain or an external brain, a coach that can process the thing and letting those be two separate entities seems to be something that a lot of people with, uh, you know, chronic or persistent pain are, are kind of lacking. Yeah. And I, you know, I, you can videotape yourself working out and I, and I suppose like, I'm sure it's more than possible. And a lot of coaches probably can get themselves in that mindset and be able to like analyze their movement objectively. But, um, I don't know. There's also like a personal relational element to working with a coach where, um, you know, like in our conversations, a lot of times we're not even talking about anything I'm doing in the gym. Like we're just kind of bouncing more general kind of ideas about tension and movement and maybe even not that. But it ultimately still ends up being helpful because I am able to kind of use you as a mirror for some of the thoughts that are coming into my head while I'm moving and, and you know, just throughout the day and sort of, um, you know, get out of the system of my own mind and get some input from a system that is inherently different and, and has a different perspective. Yeah. And this is where, you know, like I, I wish I could say that this came from... <laughs> an authentically good place for me as a practitioner. But I think, you know, early on, and maybe you appreciate this as a, as a mental health provider, but like, you're just scared of not getting people good results. So it's like anything that I could do to hedge my bets of a good outcome or to buy me a little bit more slack in the system in case I gave a patient a bad outcome uh, seemed useful. And so that led to me really like starting to just ask a lot about people's lives and people's relationships and people's thoughts. Um, really as a strategy to, to try, to try to be a less bad physical therapist when I was younger. And what I've noticed now, cause it's like that, that habit kind of stuck. It's like the conversations that we have, which are pretty similar to like, you know, a lot of other clients I manage, it's like those form the backdrop of the thing that I'm writing. It's like a program only makes sense in the context of a person's life. Um, and I know this really isn't the chronic pain point, but I just think that's, that's something that I see coaches and therapists really missing the boat on is thinking that it really all it really is just about like programming, exercise selection, can you coach and cue movement? Like all those things matter. And for sure, you know, listen to this podcast or David Gray or Bill Hartman or like whatever biomechanical you want to learn more about, because I, I do think that's important. But you you have to understand the person and the context of their life first. And I think there's just a lot of practitioners that are probably putting the cart um, many, many yards before the horse. Oh, I mean, a hundred percent. Like the idea that you could just prescribe someone the perfect set of movements that will fix their pain, I think is rooted in this like overly mechanistic approach to, you know, the, the whole topic, like ultimately not only do you need to be able to understand 
their perspective on their pain, you know, where it's coming from, like you said, like the, the context of the whole human, but they need to know that you understand. And people have a really intuitive sense of whether or not they're being listened to. And so if you talk, you want to think about like adherence, you know, someone is not going to do the program that you give them if they feel like you aren't listening to them. And so it, you can, you know, you can give them the perfect program, but ultimately, like, if you're not treating it as a partnership, that also requires some something that, you know, that you owe them beyond your own genius. <laughs> and this is something I, I've struggled with in my own practice, because I, you know, I just, of course, I just want, I just want people to do what I tell them, because, you know, I know what's best. And uh, if they just did that, they would be fine. But that's not true, because people are experts on their own lives. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. Um, I had an intelligent comment that I wanted to bring up off of that. But I think that there's just so much more than like, for you know, for you with working with a patient, um, if they came in and said, hey, I want you to fix my anxiety. If all if all you said was, well, yeah, do these three simple things that I give to all of my patients with anxiety, that's going to have a much different hit rate then, okay, let's, let's talk a little bit more about when you feel that and why you feel that. Um, and even though the ultimate interventions themselves might look similar, I guess what the point I'm driving at here is like the context in which we couch these interventions is definitely like a make or break kind of criteria for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just getting like understanding, not only what someone so say like just from my perspective like someone comes in like you said with anxiety not only do i want to understand like what does that actually feel like for you how does that manifest how has it been impacting your life but also like what have you done already you know what what have you tried and has it worked out for you because ultimately if they're coming to you it's because they've tried other things that haven't worked and so i think you need to be able to provide a rationale that is explaining to them, you know, here's why I want you to do this. Do you understand that? And like, is there anything about that that makes you uncomfortable? Because I think I just think pushing past resistance is ultimately futile. Like someone is maybe going to tell you, yes, they'll tell you they'll do everything, but they need to actually be on board with it. Like there needs to be an agreement between the practitioner and the client that is beyond just like, I'm the expert and you should listen to me. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think also was, was resistance is futile, a sneaky Star Trek reference there. Uh, I'm, I'm not like a nerd, so I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, that's, that's a lie, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, should, I should try that with someone who doesn't already know uh, this much about me. Yeah. I, I think about uh, outcome orientation versus process orientation here, because I, th I think this is probably a good place where we can start diving into kind of some things that are a little bit more actionable and generalizable. But um, the most stressful period of my professional existence was when, the, when I started my practice about seven years ago, I would only see people for one session at a time. Like we would do the consult and I'd be like, okay, this is what a session costs. And so every session I felt like I had to, I had to pick the intervention that was going to decrease their symptoms. And every, like, like every 50 minute block was this trial where I could be hired for another session or fired. And when I think about 
you know, how I do things today with like a, a session of six, you know, six uh, treatments or eight treatments, it's like the only way to get long-term truly like durable, positive outcomes is that you have to convince people that it's a process. Like it's, it's an iterative process and there's inputs and there's outputs and those are going to be idiosyncratic to the patient and the practitioner. But I think when I think about chronic and persistent pain, it's that as well. It's like there probably isn't going to be one magic pill, one silver bullet, one 90-90 hip lift. Like it's going to be this iterative process. And having someone like you or someone like me to sort of shape and guide that process that's a radically different kind of framework than I just need to find the right person to do this one thing to fix me. And then I get my life back. Yeah. I think that's a, a sort of mindset that I have adopted a lot in the past and, and what maybe sort of wasn't working with me before I, um, you know, ultimately like saw bill and, and started kind of digging into that world was like, I was sure. And so this was, I was actually just having like shoulder pain and uh, and neck pain from like getting into like powerlifting in college and i i was just so certain that i just needed to find the right like three pt exercises and I, and if i just did them because i mean the the mechanistic view of the human body is just so entrancing for people who kind of have an analytical overthinking brain um and it, it just you know persistent pain does not manifest in a way that is um conducive to approaching it with the, with that mindset i think like you mentioned kind of wanting to like do so much at first with a client when you first started that's you know that's sort of where i am right now where i am constantly reminded that i'm trying to do too much in session and it's difficult with the managed care model of you know whether it's mental health or um or pt where like you you do kind of sometimes have a limited number of sessions to get things done. But ultimately, like, you know, if I if I was in, if I had someone in persistent pain, I would not be, you know, thinking this is going to be this is going to be handled in five sessions, I would want them to be thinking much more long term. Little rant. Let's no, 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 I, th I think that's kind of exactly the direction I want to take this because before we started recording, we were talking about the need to create space and create a Actually, let me, let me let me back up because I think this is an interesting example. So it's like what I the other half of my life, which is consulting for uh, PT technology companies, I do a lot of training with the sales team. And one thing that we're always trying to get across to our sales staff is that they need to create a perception of urgency, that they need to um, really make a prospect feel like like this is a change that needs to be made within the next week or month or quarter. And I think that when we talk about chronic and persistent pain, it's almost like the opposite needs to happen. Like we, we need to think that we have space, that where we currently are is okay in the here and now, that we don't have to make things from a rushed or impatient viewpoint. Um, and I know like this is something that you and I have just talked about a lot, this, this need to create a little bit of space and lack of urgency so that we can make decisions from a much more centered and stable platform. Yeah, I think that like that striving to fix the pain, that um, that desire to control the pain experience is actually ultimately like the catalyst of the pain being persistent for a lot of people, I'm not saying for everyone, but for a lot of people, I think that urgency to just get rid of the pain 
um, that's maybe what needs to be addressed first is can we live with what our life is like right now with what the pain feels like right now and get curious about it and try to just loosen some of the tension associated with that aversion that just like pushing away of the pain experience because to, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that persistent pain is ultimately like the product of tension and control is tension producing, you know, a analyzing is tension producing. How do you square what seems like a very unfriendly dichotomy of the need to have enough control and enough vision that you can kind of steer the ship in a good direction long term, but ceding enough control in the day to day or having enough acceptance in the day to day to be able to not have to make those long term decisions from a rushed place? Yeah, I think it does come down to, you know, I use the terms like striving, uh, craving and aversion. And those are all very much like um, sort of mindfulness terms, you know, Buddhist terminology, which is like very much what informs my practice. It's It's been a, a big part of my life for like a decade. And I think that can be difficult for people, especially really, um, you know, really highly motivated people to understand that like you can plan and you can look to the future and you can act in a way that is not striving and like reaching forward and needing for the result to be some specific thing. So I think, you know, I don't remember if this was off mic or not, but you were talking about, you know, being process over outcome oriented. And I think that's a huge part of it. It's like you can plan as much as you want, but ultimately what's important is what you're feeling in the moment, what you're experiencing in the moment, and just sort of being able to be curious about that and sort of connect the dots in a way that is, um, you know, a little bit less connected to specific outcomes, I guess. How do you think, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking to um, assume your treatment style or anything, but if, if someone comes to you and you recognize that they're in this phase of, this thing is hurt. It's hurt for so long and my hair is on fire. And I'm just like perpetually cycling through practitioners, surgical consults, injections. How do you think about getting them from where they are to someplace that feels a little bit less rushed in terms of, you know, actual tactics or strategies? This season of More Train, Less Pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day -day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I could execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, I always sort of explain my practice as having basically two components and, and I really don't treat, you know, I, I like working with chronic pain. I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert. I, but honestly, like I don't treat persistent pain that much differently than I treat persistent anxiety or depression or, you know, most sort of mental health concerns. You know, what, what I'm, what I'm thinking of is first of all, we need to know where you're at right now. You know, if your hair is on fire, I need to know to what extent I need to know how that's affecting your life. I need to know, you know, exactly how this is distressing you and what you've tried before this. And then from there, you know, I'm sort of seeing it as there are tension points in the system of your life. Let's try to identify what those are. And so like the, the, the sort of two ways that I approach this are with mindfulness training, sort of, you know, building up the ability to recognize that tension and sort of enhance the clarity of what you're experiencing. So like, you know, if you talk to someone who went from maybe never med meditating or, you know, you can think of it as just any sort of mindfulness training, whether it's doing yoga, um, breath work, meditating, but anything that's sort of about grounding your awareness in the present. You talk to someone who's, who's went from never doing that to maybe doing it for a few years, and they'll talk about having this enhanced clarity of what their experience is and being able to observe that experience without interference, tension, aversion. I think that's huge for people in chronic pain to, if you know, look at my low back pain and not just have it be my low back pain. You know, what, what the experience of it really is, is these intrusive thoughts, you know, about how long is this going to be around? What do I need to do to fix it? Can I keep going on like this? All this emotional sensation, um, you know, just like a tightness in the chest. Um, for a lot of people, just like this extra tension elsewhere in their body. And then the actual physical sensation, which when you really examine like what the physical sensation of pain is, it's a little bit less scary. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a warmth, it's a, a tightness, it's a tension. So, you know, we're, we're looking at what is this pain actually? What is this tension? What does it really feel like? And then from there sort of looking at that tension as trauma, as, as protective tension that was developed by something you went through, whether it was, you know, something um, that happened in your life that had more of like emotional consequences, or maybe a, a car accident that you were in, and, and you had whiplash, and, and there's all these, you know, ripple effects from that. And so sort of working to dissolve that tension by processing the trauma. And, you know, there's a, a million ways to do that. But that that's sort of, um, that's sort of the framework I, I look at this through. I don't know if that like answers your question. No, I think I think it answers it. And then some I mean, I, I wrote down three bullet points as you were talking, and I, I think we might maybe progress through them uh, backwards, because the, the third is most recent in my mind. Um, because I think, as someone that's been both in physical therapy and psychotherapy now, now for, for quite a while, viewing things through a psychotherapy lens, it's always felt useful to me to 
try and derive additional understanding of why your behavior is the way it is or why your thoughts are the way that they are. I think a lot of this has to do with like upbringing or maladaptive beliefs. Um, but that's, I mean, that seems to be a big tenet uh, with, you know, m- most practitioners of psychotherapy is, is trying to really trying to get a person to acknowledge that their brain isn't just trying to screw them over for no reason, that that uh, tension, as you put it, that anxiety, that depression, that whatever, that pattern of thought, that is there for a good reason. It just might not be serving you anymore. And I think when I, when I think about chronic and persistent pain, it's a lot like a lot of the same things need to happen first, where someone will come in and say, you know, I've had hip pain for 15 years because this, this dumb anterior pelvic tilt. What they don't understand is like the anterior pelvic tilt is, is their body doing the best that it, that it can in that particular point. Like your body's going to do what it needs to do to be able to stand, to be able to walk, to be able to breathe. It's going to prioritize those way above like not compressing a labrum on a hip or a disc on a back or a rotator cuff tendon. So I think to me, that's always seemed really useful to make a person aware like, hey, this anterior pelvic tilt is not this um, hideous postural aberration. It's it's something that's very, very common. And your body's doing that to solve a problem. Unfortunately, by solving that problem, it's creating compression somewhere else in the chain but first, like we get, we need to thank your body for uh, you know successfully resolving the issue of being able to stand upright against gravity and to breathe. It's not doing this to screw you over. And I feel like that for me, that was such a massive paradigm shift, and for a lot of my uh, patients and clients, such a massive paradigm shift. Absolutely, that I, I love that that like fits so well with sort of the systems approach that I take to to working with clients where you know, so many of them are so critical of themselves. They're, they're so lacking in the ability to be compassionate about these adaptive, you know, protective habits that have formed. And what you mentioned, like being able to thank a part, thank a strategy, thank a habit for protecting you for, you know, so maybe more from my perspective, um, you know, you, you look at, say that self-critic, that self-critic that is really, really loud in a lot of people's heads. Well, you know, it's, it's there. It came about for a reason. It came about to try to maybe keep you on track when things were really hard, or maybe to try to protect you from feeling embarrassment. Um, you know, when someone else criticizes you, you look at any part of the mind system as well as the body system. And there is a reason why it's there. And it's not because there's something wrong with you because you did something wrong, like ultimately this stuff is kind of just arising on its own. And if you can approach it with that non-judgmental curiosity, you're in such a better place to shift things around. Like I kind of see it as like untangling a knot, you know, you go in and just start ripping at the knot and you might just make it tighter. But if you can kind of just take a look at it and start to tease things out with less tension, um, it might take some time, but ultimately you're actually going to get somewhere. It's really, I really think that like that curiosity is so important. And a lot of people, they have so much doubt and so much self judgment wrapped up in how they're approaching their own well being. It can be hard to just have that like lighthearted, curious approach. Yes. I mean, especially when, you know, when you're talking about something as heavy as, 
you know, knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain that might be requiring surgery. Um, you know, I, th- I, th- I think that can be tough to authentically engender in people. When you were saying what you just said, I, you know, what, what, what came to mind is this idea of, um, cause kind of being in the tech world, it's like, I'm, you know, I, I know a lot of self-made CEO tech entrepreneur types and uh, by and large, they tend to be very complicated people because I think a lot of the strategies that propelled them to success earlier in life are the very same ones that are now making them, you know, miserable. And it's, it's, it's not all, but it's, it's very common. And then, you know, this refusal to acknowledge that their pattern of anxiety was at one point incredibly adaptive and sort of the rocket fuel that got them to this point. Um, and maybe, you know, an ability to partition that, like say, you know, there's, there's biz, there's business self and then there's, there's personal self and maybe there's different space for anxiety. It, in the physical realm, what that makes me think of, cause I've been working with Bill now for a while. It's like, obviously I've had, had these hip things going on. Um, the very same reason that I have these hit things going on was the thing that made me really, really good at running for, you know, 12 years. Like the same exact reason that I could rip off these pretty fast 400s and 800s is, is kind of now what's doing me in. It's like, well, I could choose to hate that, but then I would also have to hate all these happy memories and all these connections that I made competing in track and field for the better part of two decades. And so you always, yeah, I mean, I, I think appreciating the larger context of the thing and realizing that strategies can exist maybe in one context and not another or strategies that were once serving uh, that, that are no longer serving you. But I, I, I think that's just such an important inflection point for people to, to arrive at or to walk through. Yeah. I think um, what you mentioned about just like self-made CEOs, entrepreneur types, it makes me think about, the importance of gratitude and how, you know, a lot of these people that you're talking about who do become very successful, you know, some of them struggle to figure things out, but you know, a lot of people in that space do kind of become very involved in like mindfulness circles or, um, you know, just sort of self-help circles because now they have, you know, this, this money, they have this capital and this sometimes free time to, to go about like, looking after themselves in that way and it's like you you would you maybe wouldn't be there you wouldn't maybe have the opportunity to grow in this way if you hadn't sort of pushed yourself or you know been pushed into a corner by these strategies that ultimately were adaptive but but not you know good for you in the long run like I, I think about that with my struggles with my Achilles I, I spent a lot of years regretting that I didn't get to become you know, the runner that I thought I had the right to be. Um, but I guarantee that if I had never had injury struggles, I, I wouldn't have become a mental health counselor. I probably wouldn't have had, you know, all this time that I spent in my 20s getting into like making music and exploring like the creative side of myself. Um, I mean, it, I just would be an entirely different person. So like the most painful opportunities often are these inflection points for personal growth. And it's not just as easy as, um, you know, flipping the perspective and being like, yeah, no, I'm glad my back hurts. But <laughs> I think looking back when, when people move past persistent pain, often they do see it as a turning point in their life for the better. 
For for sure. And I, I, you know, it's one of those things where you can't just chuck the bathwater out along with the baby. Like it's kind of a similar story to what you just described. I mean, if my hips weren't giving me trouble from age 15 on, I never go to physical therapy school. I never make those personal connections. I never start helping people. I never really deepen my understanding of biomechanics. And now it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a fair amount of personal pain and anguish tied up in multiple surgeries and and, and persistent pain um, and sort of similar to you, like like track and field dreams deferred. But if I look at the area under the curve of the opportunity that that's afforded me to really engage with other facets of life or help other people, I, you know, I... I even sitting here talking to you now, like thinking about multiple surgeries, you know, all, all this scary stuff. It's like, I don't, I don't think I would change it. Um, I, I, I like where I am and I like what I've become as a result of that. And I think that we need to allow space for an acknowledgement of that, um, but also a desire to change the current circumstance. And I, that's something that you and I were talking a little bit about off air. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it... I'm sure you you would probably agree with this. Like my issues with injury were always very like humbling experiences, um, which ultimately like I I think were were experiences that I needed. But yeah, like that desire to change things. I think you can be sitting right where you are, wanting to not be in pain. And have that be a very, very different experience depending on whether or not you are striving for that outcome. Because ultimately, things just are going to be what they're going to be. You're either going to get out of pain or you're not. Um, I mean, it, you can expand that idea out to be literally connected to anything in life that, that you want. Like, it's either going to happen or it's not. Um, and I think that if you can kind of aspire to things while still remaining grounded in the reality of what is happening right in front of you and not constantly on the edge of your seat needing the outcome to be a certain way in order to feel whole and complete then you know aspiring is just it's only a healthy thing because no matter where you get to you'll be happy to be there um yeah i, I don't know it's a it's a really um it's a really nuanced thing to talk about. And I think it's something I still struggle with because I have this type A competitive conditioning that has driven me to be like, you know, good, you know, pretty good at what I'm doing now, but is also like leading me to places in my practice where I'm realizing like, oh, okay, this is actually not where I need to be if I want to like really help people from the most authentic place. Yeah. Way back in the uh, in the archives of this podcast, I think season one, we did an episode on the uh, Hegelian dialectic. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but I think you um, made those words up. <laughs> no, it's so it's so Hegel was a philosopher back in the day, and and he talked about how every movement in human thought starts at an extreme position, and then something happens, and you get the so that 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 was called the thesis. Something happens and then it swings to the other end of the pendulum called the antithesis. 
And then over time, it settles back into this happy medium called the synthesis. I'm actually very impressed I remembered those words. But um, what I think about, like your, like, your journey is my journey. We're both driven type A, fairly high energy people. Um, the similarities don't like you're you know, running narrow people, all all that stuff. But yeah, yeah. I mean, if people could see us right now, they would just just yeah. very similar looking white guys. <laughs> but when you know, because I think my journey did mirror yours, and it's like, okay, this type A thing is a problem. So let's be aggressively type B. Like let's be aggressively in the moment, and let's try to shed away all pretense of I want things to be better. And of course, that's not like you're taking away your superpower in that way, um, which is the same way Bill talks about, you know, like like physiologic traits. It's like, no, you, you want to continue to be great in the domains that you can be great in. They just need to be tempered. And I guess my question to you would be, let's say you've been working with someone for a few sessions. Let's say they came to you and like their hair was on fire, chronic back pain, losing their mind over it. They want to gain a handle on the anxiety and depression related to that you're able to ground them with some mindfulness practices and they're trending towards being more mindful and a little bit less type A in the here and now. But now they're struggling making that transition with still wanting to strive for things to feel better and be better. You know, how do you get a person to walk that path of being mindful and grounded in the here and now, but still maintaining optimism, hope and drive to make things better in the future? Yeah, I think so. When I think of like a the the type A type B sort of dichotomy, I think of type A as being about very much like control, um, you know, controlling outcomes, um, you know, really exerting like a lot of influence. And so, like, like when I think about you know what you're you're sort of talking about is what makes you know you special, what makes me special. Like it, it's more to me like the energy. And I think that energy is not going anywhere. And I, you know, you talk about wanting to be aggressively type B. I think I kind of went through a similar thing. We're still using that energy to try to control. Um, we're, we're using that energy, and we're trying to control our our actions and our experience to like you know basically be an inauthentic version of ourselves. So I think what I do with clients in this exact situation that you're bringing up is I kind of shift to talking about like values. Um, I think it's important to ground people not just in the present and in um, sort of the ability to have like a foundation of feeling okay with how things are, but to also get them in touch with the most authentic things that drive them to to exist in the world and create the kind of world that they want. And so I think just having some conversations about like what are the values that you have that your ideal self you know would would live by and let's let's get those kind of fleshed out so that we can keep referring back to them and i think it's for me less about making sure that they still can access this kind of like type a controlling like planning self and more just like you know do you have Do you have a compass, a compass that is connected to you very authentically, that is going to help you make decisions day to day in a way that is going to take your life somewhere that you want it to be? Um, yeah, yeah, I'd say that's how I approach it. How do you think about uh, helping a person to construct that 
compass or that value set. So, I mean, a lot of times, for, you know, when you ask people, like you, you kind of explain the importance of values and, and sort of why we would even want to maybe come up with a handful of values, they're going to have a few right off the bat, you know, humor or, um, you know, connectedness. Um, but, you know, you can, you can find, uh, so th this is kind of taken from the, the acceptance and commitment therapy framework, which I don't use a lot, but I, they do, um, there are, there are a lot of great sort of values activities that you can do that sort of take these huge lists of values, just any sort of value that would maybe drive a, a human to want to do a thing. And we just kind of see like what, you know, what sticks, what, what feels right to you. We're really trying to be intuitive about this and, and to not like overthink it. And so those values are going to change, you know, year to year, month to month, probably even day to day. But if we can kind of have a working map that is just allowing someone to kind of refer back to the type of person that they want to be and the type of life that they want to build, I think it's allowing them to sort of improvise on a daily basis, even if um, things kind of go awry and, and their plan, you know, maybe doesn't work out. I think just sort of having someone be in touch with where they want to be headed in a general sense, I think that's what's important. Yeah, it makes me think, actually, going back to a recent episode that I recorded with John Pope, who I brought up earlier, and this might not be a value so much as maybe like like a maxim, but we talked about this tenet of uh, don't do nothing. Like, no matter where you are in your chronic or persistent pain journey, the temptation to some degree is always like, I want to shut things down until I get this adequately figured out. In my opinion, that's just about the worst thing that you can do. And John was telling his own personal story about you know, several consecutive shoulder surgeries and um, talking about what was the most impactful. He's like, in day three, I was back in the gym. I was doing, you know, uh, belt squats and lunges. I was training the opposite arm because I just I never wanted to leave that mentality of a person that trains, a person that's experiencing their own body. And, you know, I think for me personally and professionally in the domain of health and fitness, this don't do nothing thing just keeps popping up again and again, because there's just such a chasm between like, what it feels like is there should be a chasm between doing, you know, a couple sets of body weight uh, squats and like a light floor press and like actually training. And, you know, for the past year, that's kind of what I've been relegated to. It's been a lot of body weight stuff. Um, but I would actually, I would argue that the chasm is between doing light stuff and doing no stuff and the the yeah i riff on that for a bit because i think i think you'd have some interesting things to say sure yeah i think i i think people need to feel like they're progressing in some way um they need to feel like they are moving down the path you know wh whether it is getting specifically where they want to be or whether they need to sort of reassess like when you're doing nothing there is no progression there is no feeling of movement um just having the habit of you know you know they say for people that struggle to keep up a fitness habit like just go to the gym go and sit and be on your phone if you want like you know getting people to like see where they are right now and realize like the first step can be so much smaller than you think and i think for me working with a lot of people with low motivation um, you know, sort of depressive type symptoms, you have to scale that back so much more than you might think, because you, you know, if someone comes in to my office and 
they're struggling to find motivation to do anything. My mind immediately is like, well, man, if I could just get you walking 30 minutes and meditating and going and like connecting with your friends that you haven't talked to in a while, you're gonna be feeling so much better. But it's like, if they were to do that, they would burn out immediately and then stop even like coming to see me. So at least from my perspective, there's this sort of, yes, don't do nothing, but be realistic about where clients are and sort of realize that the not doing nothing, it doesn't even have to be a push-up. you know, it could just be taking a five minute walk. Um, it could, it could be anything, but just as long as there is a model of like progression, as long as we're just trying to move in some direction, you're actually going to get somewhere. Yeah, I think this is a, this is as good of a place as any to talk about this this illusory nature of infinite progression or continual progression. Because I know personally, this is something that I really struggled with, even when I was healthy enough to like lift heavy and uh, and run, you know, fast. This notion of I'm doing these things in order to get this objective outcome, weight on the bar, uh, time around the track. And if I'm not going to see any improvement relative to where I am now, then I'm done. And I, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of X track athletes, X CrossFit athletes come and work with me. And I think that this is a really tough nut to crack with a lot of people that, Hey, just because we're not going to deadlift 500 pounds again, doesn't mean that we don't still train the hinge pattern and walk into the gym. Um, yeah, I, 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 that ends up being such a, again, we talk about these like important inflection points, but um, it took me getting to a pretty dark place, you know, like, like personally and training wise for me to acknowledge that if I did nothing, the rate of decline of a lot of physical attributes that I care about, I was, was almost assuredly going to be steeper and more precipitous. And if I did stuff and even if, even if I, yeah, I was losing mass and I was getting weaker and I was getting stiffer. Well, it's still a win. It's still forward momentum and it's still forward progression relative to what the, the null hypothesis, if you will, would be. Is this, you know, is that something that you see in your practice sort of this, uh, this, well, if I can't have it this particular way, or if I can't achieve this, this absolute outcome, then it's not even worth trying. Uh, is that something that you're you're having to come up against with? Oh, I mean, more often than not, I think yeah. a lot of the, you know, like I've talked about sort of the the need to control your experience, the sort of analytical overthinking like that is also often associated with perfectionism. And so I do get a lot of people who feel that if they cannot do whatever it is I asked them to do, you know, all seven days in between sessions, they might as well not even do it one day. And that is, that is always telling me like, then I'm asking you to do too much for now. I it's, you know, this isn't really my wheelhouse, but you mentioning that just kind of makes me think about like aging athletes. Um, you know, you and I are both like in our mid thirties and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm at the age where I'm not going to be getting better in much stuff. Like I'll probably be a better golfer when I'm 50. I'm not going to be ever as fast as I was even when I was like 15 and 16. And so I think 
there's also this sense of like being flexible with the goalposts and realizing that like if you are kind of at the end of a sort of progression with something you can always just like switch your focus to something else um and and you and like kind of inherently need to because as you get older like you're you're not going to keep getting stronger you're not going to keep getting faster you're not even going to keep getting better at moving um but you can always get better at something you know you can always have progression in some way while maybe just trying to maintain in other parts of your life so yeah not not really in my wheelhouse that aspect but it's something i thought of i, I like how you termed that the having some degree of flexibility with goalposts because when i think about that it's it's having the goalpost be some version of you that's doing nothing, that's doing no training, right? Like if, if we're generalizing this to, to folks that have some degree of persistent pain, that's kind of getting them down. It's like, as long as you are doing something to make you better relative to the you that you would be that isn't engaging in a physical practice, that is still, you're still in the black. You're still fighting entropy you're still, you know, continuing to combat this, like this inevitable degradation of physical abilities. Um, even though at times it can, it can be really discouraging because you're not doing what you were doing when you were 16 or 25 or, or what have you. But I, yeah, I, I really, I like, I like that notion of having goalposts that are sufficiently flexible and not tied into some imagined past or future version of yourself, but just anchored to like the worst case that it could be in the here and now. And that, that kind of makes me think about the importance of like the assessment measures that you use. Um, you know, I, I have never been a fan of, you know, whether it's with chronic pain, like talking about pain intensity or pain scores or whatever, um, you know, or with anything related to mental health, like having someone score, you know, their anxiety on a, a scale of one to 10, you know, I'm much more interested in function and, and what are you doing? And so if someone's pain hasn't really changed that much, but they are now doing more. Or if someone's like mental health symptoms that are distressing to them haven't really changed that much, but now they're going out with friends once a week and, and maybe reconnecting with family and, you know, getting back into their hobbies, that's progression, whether or not the, the thing that they really care about the, the symptomology, whether or not that's changed. I think it's about flipping the perspective to be about what you're doing, what you're actually doing in the world. And then I think the, the sort of like paradox of that is that when you do that, the symptomology does tend to fade when you stop focusing on it so much. And I think this is a really useful segue to the, to the thing that I kind of wanted to wrap on because it just seems to be something that you've brought up time and time again, which is this notion of tension points not fighting tension with tension and you know and i'm just interjecting my interpretation here kind of like the modifiability of tension points um and maybe this becomes a discussion about pain versus suffering but i just wanted to sort of tee you up there because i think a lot of the conversations that we've had in our sessions and even that we had before before we hit record today sort of center around these these ideas of tension not being the resolution of of earlier tension um or you know, suffering and pain really being two completely different things. Yeah, I think um, the more I sort of start to build my model, because, you know, like, I, like I've said, I'm, 
relatively like new to the field. And so, you know, I'm kind of trying to still stay humble enough to, to be able to just like develop my model slowly and sort of change things when I come up against, um, information that kind of rubs against the way that I'm perceiving things. But the thing that I kind of keep coming back to is this idea that like tension ultimately tension in the system is ultimately what we're trying to address like period you know the the mind in in my case is a system but also like the mind and the body are just part of the same system and the body is part of a family system and the family is part of a community system the community is part of you know a city it, it just keeps on going it's all systems all the way up and all the way down. And so, you know, a lot of therapists are much more focused on external tension, you know, working through family dynamics. Um, you know, a lot of people with more of a social work background are much more concerned about, um, you know, sort of the resources that people have access to in their community, um, you know, sort of addressing that tension in different parts of the system. But ultimately, I really think like when you look at someone in chronic pain, there is always some sort of blockage, something that they're cramping up around, something that developed organically to protect them that is leading to a pain experience by that tension sort of calcifying. And so, I, I see my work as being first and foremost about recognizing where that tension is, helping someone recognize where it is, and not trying to bypass it. Because sometimes the tension is, I just don't even want to like, I don't really even want to be here. And I don't really want to look inward. And you can't just walk past that. Like you need to address the tension from the outside in. But ultimately, like you're trying to get, you know, the most healing work is done when you are talking about some of the hardest experiences that people have gone through. Um, and I think when you start to resolve that tension, those outcomes are really, really extreme. But to get there, you have to be a good listener, like we were talking about earlier, like you have to really understand how that tension came to be and what other protective mechanisms are maybe preventing that person from seeing and addressing it. Kind of a, a vague topic. So I get kind of lost in the weeds talking about it, but uh, what are, what are your thoughts there? No, I mean, I, I think that because where I ultimately wanted to go with this was I think a person could hear what you just said and taken out of context, um, think that what you mean is, you know, sort of like the root cause of their pain is something that's psychological and, in, in, oh, yeah. you know, in it. and I, I think the context that I want to provide would be, and this is what feels true to me and true to my clients. I, I can't speak for them, but it seems to be working for them anyway. They're, in a lot of instances, pain is very real. Like there is a very real structural thing happening. Like there's a, and this is why, like you know, Bill's a mentor of mine. It's like I think the biomechanics matter. To say that they don't is ridiculous. But and I think that 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 presents an obvious source of potential tension. And 
to me, this is, at least in this context, non-modifiable tension. Like, do everything that you can to alleviate it. Um, but sometimes, either it is what it is, or it is what's, what it's going to be until maybe you get a surgery or something like that. But I think where this gets really interesting is the secondary and tertiary tension that crops up around that original tension. And I think that this this is where you are able to dramatically help your clients or clients are dramatically able to help themselves. And this is where I was going with like suffering versus pain, because I think that those secondary and tertiary sources of tension really are the mechanism of, you know, at least 50, if not 80 or 90% of the suffering that's involved in a pain experience. I know, you know, for me, it's things like, if this hip pain continues, I'm not going to be able to walk. Will I live with this hip pain for the rest of my life? Like, it's all very future-oriented, anxiety-fueled suffering. And if I'm really able to pare it back of, okay, I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm a little distracted because my hip hurts. And I'm a little bummed I'm not going to go for a run later. But that's about it. <laughs> like, that's all it is in the here and now. And and so I, I just think being able to really dive into the difference between the sensation, you know, as you put, it's like the, the nociception, the burning, the tingling, the pressure, and the emotions or the thoughts that those things kick up really ends up being a, a quite you know, a quite different outcome in terms of day to day or week to week. Yeah. I think the only place I would kind of push back on there is the notion of like secondary and tertiary, because I think when we look at the system that is producing pain, it's going both directions. So I think about that's, that's a very own, good point. <laughs> yeah. Like my neck and shoulder pain that I was experiencing when I went to bill, you know, I think you could make in my case, a pretty solid argument that the, um, inception of that pain was largely due to stress, like lifestyle stuff, um, even like, you know, social disconnectedness, um, a lot of like kind of existential issues that were just really stressing me out at the time. And so when I went to Bill, like I, it didn't really help right away. It wasn't until I started addressing my mindset started working with a counselor that I started being capable of sort of looking at this pain with less fear and less apprehension. And that's when it started to click. And then all of a sudden, like while I was doing like a reset, I was kind of like having fun with it and getting curious and able to like recognize where this physical tension was and release it in a way that I was kind of like scared to do before. And so I, th I think like, you know, the whole idea of pain, you know, being all in your head, I would argue that pain, I'm not, I'm not arguing it, like objectively pain is all in your head. Like whether you got shot in the knee <laughs> or right. your neck just like kind of hurts because you're stressed at work. And so it's all real, you know, it's, it's all real. The experience of it is what matters. And I, from my perspective, I really, I don't care about the biomechanics purely because it's above my pay grade or at least outside of my range of expertise. But I would say that like working with someone on the experience of pain, it's, I mean, it's, it's biopsychosocial, like it is all connected. It's all a system. And I think that you can address 
those tension points from a bunch of different areas and have results. And I think that's what's so cool about some of the conversations that you and I have is there's just so much in common with what we do. And yet like the actual X's and O's of our day-to-day work life are super, super different. But the, the philosophy is really connected because yeah, you can, you can kind of, you can look at this from a bunch of different perspectives and end up getting the same outcomes. Yeah. Very well said. I think, um, you know, as, as we round to a close here, what, you know, for, for those that are listening that maybe have been struggling with chronic or persistent pain for quite some time, um, maybe they've been, you know, unsuccessful with like conventional physical therapy or, um, you know, maybe they're dependent on medication. What, what, what general recommendations would you have for that type of uh, client or athlete or patient? Yeah, I, I would say that the most important thing for someone in that position is to seek help in some form. But that's a tough sell for some people because, I mean, you know, therapy is expensive. A lot of people can't afford it. You know, PT can be expensive if you, if you don't have insurance, it doesn't cover it. Um, it can be as much as just reaching out and talking to your friends or your family about what you're going through. Um, ultimately, I think the, the one thing you can't do and expect progress is to suffer in silence and try and figure all, it all out on your own. I think finding the right person to work with, the right professional to work with, whether it's a PT, whether it's you know someone who does what I do, whether it's a, a meditation teacher or a yoga teacher, whether it's a life coach, I think just being able to sort of unburden some of the fear and some of the stress that goes with being in persistent pain, that has for me, I think more of a, more of an effect than any intervention I've ever prescribed, any exercise probably that you've ever given someone is just having someone to like, listen and be there with you and acknowledge like this sucks. I'm sorry you're going through it. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I have nothing to add to that. I completely agree with that recommendation. And I think that was very well said by a man that's, you know, walked that path, like I said, the intro, both personally and professionally. So Sam, I wanted to thank you again for, for being here with me today. Um, I know that, you know, you've, you've kind of just gotten up and running with your own practice. So maybe there's nothing that you want to plug, but, um, you know, if you have a website or a practice or an Instagram, uh, now would be the time to do so. Ooh, cannot find me on social media. Don't even try. Nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, you know, if you're, if you're in Indiana and, and you're uh, looking to work with a therapist, you can, can look me up. I'm, uh, I'm at a private practice called Fountain Square Counseling and Wellness in Indianapolis. Um, yeah, beyond that, I, I guess I would like to plug, um, you know, reaching out to family and friends for connection and also, uh, working with Tim cause he's really good at what he does. <laughs> I think for, for those that are still listening, um, Sam Leppers, remember that name because there's a very real possibility that I'm going to be, you know, trying to recruit him for some kind of combined, uh, physical therapy, mental health thing in the next year or two. So again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, appreciate your insight, your expertise, your vulnerability in all these matters and look forward to, uh, continuing both our personal and professional relationship. 
All right. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yep. Have a good one, man. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening. Oh,